we're concluding our series um, in the seven churches here in, in Revelation chapter 3. And uh, we're going to begin uh, by reading our text, and then we're going to get into it after that. So Revelation chapter 3, and beginning in verse 14, he says, the angel, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? These are the words of the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one. Uh, but because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I do not need anything. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And so I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shamefulness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. And those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with him and he will eat with me. And to him who overcomes, I will give, uh, to, I will give him to sit with me on the throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we've gone through uh, any, uh, these various churches, the, the occasion rises to correct some, some things uh, that are, are said about verses. Um, and, and so when we've had the opportunity to do that, we, we kind of take just a little bit of a side trip. It's not the main point that I want to take away, but uh, it is easy, I think, for us to sometimes read the, the scriptures uh, and come away with incorrect uh, ideas of what they mean. And a lot of that has to do with the simple fact that somewhere at some point in time, someone had a good idea, and that was to, to put our Bible into to place into to subdivisions. They did chapters, and then later on, they, they, they further narrowed it down to verses. Uh, and that was to, to make it easy for us to locate things. And, 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 you know, imagine if you had to know where something was in, in, uh, in the book of Acts, and you had no no reference point other than I think it's around this. Well, what's that around? I can't remember what he was talking about. And you had to kind of, you would have to memorize. Maybe this would be a good thing if we got rid of verses and, and, and all, the, all the chapters and we would have to learn it uh, so, so that we knew the whole thing. I remember in, in, in college, we had to know what was in every chapter. We, we had to have a reference through and, and you had to we had to be able to say one thing in each chapter, just kind of as a reference. You know, some of them are easy. First Corinthians 13, you know what, what, what's going to be there. Acts chapter 2, you kind of know what's going to be there. And it's easy to do. We kind of have some reference points. I had to do it with every chapter. And uh, so uh, what, what you're going to turn to, where, where is this approximately located? And this is the way you would, you would you know, know the Bible back then before verses. Unfortunately, what verses did, they did something that's, that's kind of harmful. They gave kind of this, uh, this ability for us to isolate uh, a, a particular couple of phrases. And, and, and we remove the context from it because we just open up a quote. Well, what do you want to talk about? Okay, let's talk about this. And you look for the word, you boom, and you go to this one little place and you, you rip a verse right out of its context. Right? And that, it gave us that ability to do that and that tendency to do that. Uh, because we like to, to put everything, and so there are verses, uh, how, if we didn't have that, it would not be natural for us to come to some conclusions that we come to 
you know, like you, you just, you, you was like, how did you get that from there? Well, this is how a lot of times we get that from there. Uh, so there are a lot of times that there are oversights. Now, sometimes they're just slight little errors and they don't really affect too much. Um, and it's just like, okay, that's not really what that's talking about, but that's okay. Uh, it, but sometimes these have, and a lot of times, unfortunately, they, they, these have very significant ramifications, right? Uh, and it may be that, that it comes from not knowing the cultural background or the, the whatever is going on. And, and in, these, in these, if you've noticed that we go through the churches, a lot of the historical things that are happening at the time are very important to understanding the message. Um, this, this, actually, this text provides us with a couple of instances of, of this um, in uh, Revelation, for example, Revelation 3.20 is one that, that's kind of been kind of ripped from its context by a lot of people. Uh, so here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears his voice and opens the door, I will come and, and eat with him and he with me. And, and this has been ripped from its context. And this has been turned into a verse to talk to people about how to become a Christian. This has nothing to do with how to become a Christian. He's talking. We, remember last week we talked about the, the idea of a church and what church meant. He's talking to a church. These people are already Christians. What they need to do is to repent and open up the door and let Jesus, really to let Jesus back in is really what they need to do. Uh, these people have left kind of something that God says, I'm like a visitor to you. You need to open up and let me back in. And that's what this verse is about. But if we just look at verse 20 and remove it from the entire context, in fact, the entire context of all of these messages to seven churches, these are people, they, they, they're in church. They have an angel or a, or a, a preacher, a elder, whatever that, that was referring to, but some messenger that's kind of guiding them, maybe incorrectly. I don't know what the specific wrongs are of this church, uh, but these are Christians. Uh, so, so that's kind of important. That's not, that's not really where I want to go. Uh, but, but as I say, it gives us kind of an opportunity to, to look at that. Um, but we look at some cultural significance. Um, and <clears throat> as we look at this, um, we, we want to find cultural significance in things. And, and there's another reference here. And we're going to, to look at... Um, what message he was trying to communicate, because there are some things that, that look at cultural significance of, of this particular city, and they come close. Uh, but he, he mentions springs and aqueducts and, uh, or, or this hot and cold water that he wishes they were. And, and people make reference to the springs and aqueducts of this area, um, and, and partially correct. To look at Laodicea, uh, there's a there's an allusion to something that's going on, and um, not too far is a city called Hierapolis. Right, Hierapolis is um, known for its hot springs. It's a resort town. It still is. Right, and um, it, it people go there and and just uh, I think it's called Pamaluke now. Uh, but it, it it's famous for these. These uh, it almost looks like hot tubs in the side of in the side of a, a mountain, uh, and they have these hot springs and people go there. Um, 
And then <clears throat> Colossae, which is not to, we know the, the, the church of Colossians, right? Uh, that letter written to them, also nearby. They were known for their cold springs. And, and so there's, there's, people have looked at this passage, and this is one of those other things that's kind of uh, understood maybe a little bit incorrect. And we look and say, uh, he was obviously contrasting this one with these two, this idea of being hot. Uh, and, and the idea is that, that is portrayed often is that, that he's saying, I, I wish you had more passion, right? Uh, I wish you were hot or cold. But the problem with that is that then he would be saying, I, I wish you, I would rather you have no passion. That seems to me not, not to be where God is trying to go. Right with, with this, so so we're going to look at maybe this this comparison uh, of these uh, of this contrast uh, a little bit differently to, to see how really in, in some way both of these were ideal. Uh, both of these had something useful. Uh, both Colossi uh, and and this other were uh, were useful in some way, um, and and so we're going to get that their problem this church maybe it had a problem with passion but i don't think that's primarily uh what what he's driving at um laodicea did have two springs and it had two rivers but unfortunately what happened is as time went on this church kind of grew uh and it grew because it's 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 like at a crossroads between a lot of these areas and it became popular but it wasn't much of a touristy place uh because uh, once they grew too much, they had to, th their water, their local water sources were not sufficient enough. So they had to build an aqueduct about, from about five miles away. Um, and, and so the water, whether, it, however it arrived to them, it was not suitable for drinking. I mean, they drank it because they had to, they had no other options. And that is going to play into uh, our lesson. But before we get to our lesson, we want to talk about the Christ of their promise. As we talk about in, in every one of these, Christ presents himself in a particular way that's, that's appropriate for their needs. And he begins where you would not think he begins. He says, this one says the amen. Now, what's amen? That's what goes at the end, right? <laughs> uh, you, you don't start your prayer, amen. Sometimes we've had our kids think, uh, in Jesus' name, amen. And they're like, you're not thinking about your prayer because you just started it the wrong way. Right? <laughs> it, it's a, it becomes a reflex. But Jesus here talking to this church, he says, uh, he says this one says the amen. The amen is a word, has a lot of different meanings, but it is basically a word that meant to approve of what has just been said. All right. Amen. It's true. It, this is a faithful saying. Verily, verily, I say unto you. Amen, amen, I say unto you. It's the same word. And uh, this is interesting. Jesus doesn't do it like everybody else. Jesus gives his amen first. Right? In other words, I don't need your approval. <laughs> I'm beginning by telling you what I say is approved. Th this message has already been approved. Yeah, I, don't, I don't care whether you like it or not. I'm giving you a message, and I am the amen. I don't need to wait for you to go, let's consider whether this is true or not. It's true. I said so. So I am the amen. 
I am the guarantee that this is right. What I'm about to say, not what's already been said, what I'm about to say is faithful. It's true. He affirms himself by himself. Remember, uh, I think <clears throat> the scriptures talk about that when, when, when God could find nothing greater to swear by, he swore by himself, right? This is the same idea. There's nothing greater, right? People try to, try to swear by something greater. People try to say, you know, on my mother's grave or, or by the gold of the temple or whatever. People try to find something really profound to attach significance to their vows or their promises. And God says, there's really nothing greater for me. So I'm just going to have to do it by myself. On me, <laughs> this is true. I am the amen. And he says, I am the faithful and the true witness. Well, this has two ideas that are important to us. <clears throat> First of all, two concepts that are kind of connected, faithful and true. Faithful and true means that he is unchanged from the original. I am the original. I am it. I haven't, with, with Christ, there's no variation. There's no shadow of turning. He is faithful. He says, when, even when we aren't faithful, he's still faithful. He doesn't change. He is the genuine article. But he's not that. He's, he's faithful, he's true, but he is what? The witness. Interesting word, witness. The witness is the word martis. It means martyr. In the, in the beginning from this period of time and, and moving forward, the idea of witnessing for God, giving your testimony, meant that you, it became synonymous with the idea of suffering. Originally, it had nothing to do with becoming a martyr. We talk about, oh, he's a martyr. Originally, that just meant he's a person that gives his testimony. But the word ended up meaning someone who dies for giving their testimony. Jesus is the original martyr. He's the original person that suffered for his testimony, which he guarantees is true. What a depth. As Jesus is trying to convince these, these churches to, to continue to give their light in a difficult time, He's like, I've already been there. I'm the original one who did everything that I'm asking you to do. To stand for, for a, a truthful testimony, even to the point of death, even to the point of being a martyr. I've already done this. I am faithful, even though I've suffered. And so this is where we find the church in Laodicea lacking. And we're going to see how this plays into their hot or cold nature. I want to talk about the condition that he describes specifically. Before we talk about the metaphor, he describes a particular condition. He says, you say I am rich and I don't need anything. This is a prosperous church. We, we've seen poor churches. We've seen weak churches. He says, your problem is your prosperity. 
Um, and this was a prosperous town. We see three metaphors used that describe this. As he's encouraging them, he says, purchase from me gold refined by fire. And he says, uh, he says, he says, anoint your eyes with eye salve. And uh, we're going to look at what, the, what that alludes to in this town. And he says, and purchase from me, uh, clothe yourself with white garments. Each of these is significant about this church, about, not about this church, excuse me, about this town. Um, Laodicea, being in its location central to being at a crossroads between a lot of these different churches and, and then moving into central Turkey, it became a place of banking. It, to do commerce, it was easier to go here. Instead of traveling all the way over here, you went to this place and they exchanged money and you went from town to town to do your commerce and it was a lot easier. They then became known for a hospital that they had here. It was a convenient place, a central location to establish a medical facility. I'm sure rudimentary by our modern standards, but by their standards, this was the location. Besides that, it, it wasn't too far from what they called the healing springs of uh, of Hierapolis. And he says, purchase from me white garments. It, this town, for whatever reason, was known for their wool, but not just any wool. They were known for black wool. I guess that, I don't know what they had, alpacas, or uh, I don't know what, the, what, what they had here. But, but, but they were known for black wool. And, and um, uh, that's, uh, that's mentioned uh, by a, a historian by the name of Strabo. Um, and, and so he uses all of these things that Laodicea was known for, things that, that built their wealth, made them rich. I mean, you're a banking center. You're, this is New York City for, for this area. I mean, not necessarily in population, but, but this is the commerce center and the hospital center and all of these things. And he says, you, you, you're so proud of all the things you have. You've become affluent and you've gotten soft is what's happened. And that is, unfortunately, the nature of prosperity. It weakens looking at history uh, as we look at the Roman Empire. Right? Julius and Augustus launched it to greatness. But it wasn't really anything at that point in time. It, they were conquerors and they, they were expanding in it. And it was, it was kind of building towards that. But um, that went on for about a century this, this move towards greatness up until about the time, uh, a little bit more in the century, right up until about the time of John. And you get the, the, the idea as you read through the, this beginning that things are about to shift, and they do, as different of emperors start to rule. Now, money is flowing to the empire. And then what do you do with it? Well, you've got to entertain. And, and, and so the Roman Empire starts having all these circuses and the, the entertainments. And not just in Rome, but, but these are, are throughout the empire. People start mimicking. And I don't know if this was happening in Laodicea, but, but you see this trend where, where things become popular and, 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 and people get money. They start to look for ways to spend it. And they get soft. 
They're not hardened by their conditions. We talk about the circuses. What, what started as literally a circus, like more like a zoo, exotic animals that, that, that the seas, I forget which one it was that brought these in, and he, he was so impressed with them. It ends up turning to gladiators, killing people for fun. And so affluence starts to affect and undermine the Roman Empire. And guess what? You've got all this money. And so people start becoming interested in all the money that's in Rome, these barbarian nations to the north in Germany and, and, and across the world start noticing, well, you've got a lot of money there. And their affluence undermines it and, and all these nations come and take it away. And since 476 A.D., Rome has been, what? Just another country. Just another country. And so we see this, oh, the, what about the barbarians? Hard conditions. And they come in and they, and they divide up the spoils of Rome. And the same thing happens to them. The same thing happens to the barbarians. They, they become educated. And, and they get the, the money and the wealth. And, and we see this primarily in two European countries that, of, of the barbarians. Look at, look at, the, look at England, the, the Brittany of, of Rome, and Gaul, which becomes France. And, and look at what happens as prosperity happens. Look at the decadence that ends up being London and Paris. And what are those countries today? You know, as this is going on, this is not just a political observance, but this happens in the church as well back then. The church has the same thing happen. The church struggles under persecution and under, under martyrdom. And, and, and we, we look at the church that happens in that we, we mentioned the Edict of Milan and Constantine forbids in, in 313 any persecution. And so people <clears throat> begin gathering. And once they can gather, they can get those church buildings we talked about. They can go to church. And they start, in fact, Constantine started using some of the tax money that he collected and started giving it to the churches. And so they started building elaborate, beautiful places of worship. And the, the bishops started getting extravagant robes. Oh, they loved, they, they, they loved the, the pomp and circumstance of the Roman emperors, and so they became like a Roman emperor. They, they modeled it, and it was attractive, and all sorts of horrific things start happening to the church. They start having all these meetings about what, what, what we should believe and not believe and what this should be and not be in all the councils. It becomes like the Senate of Rome, all these councils. And they get angry with each other. In one dispute over who was going to be the next bishop of a, a local town, 3,100 people in a church building died. 
murdered by the other group because they disagreed over something. That's the only one, one location. Bishops start murdering other people. And this is within less than a century of the Edict of Milan. There's this constant sidetracking as affluence happens to the church. These people forget that their grandparents suffered. And they begin to do the same things and take up the same things that, that happened to them. It's prosperity. And this is what's happening to Laodicea. They are affected by their prosperity. And God says, this is no good for you, this prosperity. It's what you've wanted. You've wanted for, for 300 years. You got it, and it's doing nothing good for you. And, and we struggle with this. We want prosperity so badly. <clears throat> and so God has to condi- uh, uh, correct the dimness of Laodicea. And so I want to Go back now and look at that metaphor. We talked about the therapeutic nature of Hierapolis. Their water is not drinkable. Hot springs tend to be filled with silica. Right? Uh, if you look at uh, Yellowstone, animals who, who go there because it's so attractive. It's warm. It stays up. And, and all the animals, all the elk, whatever, caribou, they go there. It's the only place where anything will grow. Their, their lifespan is significantly shorter than anywhere else. Any, anywhere else around there, the animals that drink those springs, it's unhealthy for them. Right? Oh, the prosperity. And so Hierapolis was not known as a place you went to go drink their wonderful water. <laughs> oh, but Colossi was. Cold, just mountain springs, wonderful. And then in between these two places, there's no one that wanted to go to Laodicea. Not a tourist town. It was a place you went to because you had to. They had a bank. They had clothes. But not a nice place. It wasn't, it wasn't the tourist, the Hierapolis or Colossi. In fact, um, Xenophon, the Greek historian, talked about that to, to illustrate what lukewarm water meant. He said, it's only good for slaves to bathe or drink. Like, the world then looked down on lukewarm water. It, it had more than just it was distasteful. It was distasteful culturally. And so the real problem, it's not their passion necessarily. I mean, I'm sure that that was affected by it. But it has to do with their priority. And I want to understand how I get there. A picture of our dedication to something. They were completely useless. Hierapolis was useful. It's, it's not a, a thing of degrees that, that Hierapolis was down here and 
you know, or Hierapolis was up here and Colossi was down here, cold and hot. It's, it's, it's not, it was, you're kind of in between. It wasn't a thing like that. He, he's saying, these two places around you have something useful. You might drink stuff here. You might bathe here. You've got nothing. You're completely useless to me. How did they become useless? Because of their priorities, because of their affluence, because of their desire to, to be like the community they lived in, wealthy, well-dressed, respected, all of the things that they wanted. God says, you don't stand out in any way. You have given up priorities. I don't know what caused this. I don't think they were necessarily a bad people. We have no mention of them doing the things that some of these other churches have done. We have no reference to, to the sacrifices or to the, the, the disgusting practices that were happening uh, in Pergamos. Right? We, we have no reference to, the, to those things. They were just useless. And they, they might have said, we're respectable people. Persecution doesn't affect everybody the same way. As you go back in time, um, persecution kind of goes through an evolution under the Roman Empire. They didn't persecute Jews. And so for the time period in which Christians were seen as a subset of Judaism, they weren't persecuted because there was kind of an understanding except on a few occasions when, when Jerusalem, say, got out of hand. They weren't really persecuted. But as the church grows and expands into some of these areas here, it has a more Gentile and Gentile and Gentile population, and now all of a sudden it's considered a cult. And that's when the persecution starts happening. Churches with a higher Gentile content were typically treated worse. And it wasn't always murder. It didn't always go there. Sometimes it might be things like not letting you have employment they put, or, or higher taxes or, or whatever things, whatever hoops we're going to make you jump through to make sure you tone it down a little bit. We're just going to put some economic pressure on you. Well, if you've gotten used to the nice things that prosperity has brought you, that's hard to give up all of a sudden. You get a little addicted to the nice clothes. And you get a little addicted to the, the nice reputation. I think that's what's going on here. We're just going to be a little quieter. We're just going to be a, a little bit more relevant to our surroundings. And if you're already poor, you don't have far to fall, do you? And so a lot of those didn't really change much. A lot of churches didn't change much. Maybe that's, maybe that's Philadelphia's advantage. Maybe they never got there. I don't know. But if you worked in the banking industry, if you were a Christian who was a banker, and there's pressure put on you. What are you going to do? That's your family's bread and butter. 
if you sell wool and all of a sudden that's removed from you, what are you going to do? You keep your head down. That's what I would do. It's the natural thing to do. Don't make waves. Now, this is one of the seven churches, so we've gone through and looked at each of them. Some of them are more applicable than others. I don't necessarily see the church in Waukesha as being a, uh, an affluent church that's simply useless. I don't, I don't see that, really. So why mention it? Hey, it's one of the seven churches, and that's what we're doing. But there is a warning. Not because of necessarily where I see the church in Waukesha, but because of where I see the United States of America. You see, as London and Paris became decadent and declined, there was a country that emerged and took over their prosperity in the world. And we're wealthy beyond imagination. I saw a thing uh, the other day. Uh, it was in an email sent out by Family Promise, actually, about the, the living wage of Waukesha. $31,000. $31,000. A living wage. If you make less than that, you're going to have to find another source of income in this county. Without arguing with that or whatever, that's grotesque in the world. That, that, that's... If you've been to a foreign country, then you understand what I'm saying. If you haven't, then other you go to another country and they don't have the same things about we have. You don't ask financial questions, right? That's that's the the first thing they want to know. How much do you make? That's the first question they ask you if you're an American somewhere. How much do you make? And you tell them. Here's a doctor, the guy that was doing. I forget what they call him, but. He was doing the ultrasound for when, when Katie was pregnant over there and wanted to know how much he would make in the United States. He almost cried. She's making $90 a month. You have no idea the affluence that we grow, that, that we just get up out of bed with. I had to order a toilet yesterday for my basement, a special toilet because of my house. It's 400 bucks for a toilet. And I'm like, ah, man, I guess. And I ordered it and I, and I just. And there's a, there's a part of you that thinks, my goodness, the Apple is a $400 toilet. That's crazy in the world. We live in a country of affluence. It's advantageous. And we can get dependent on it. 
We can become compromised by it. Priority, when we talk about priority, we always discuss it in one way. What is priority? What is priorities? It means what you do first, and then what you do second, and what you do third and fourth. And, and, and if we have to choose between one or two, which one has the priority, there's another way of referencing priority. And this is why I said, just wait, we'll, we'll explain what priorities have to do with this church. Priority isn't just looking at your order. We have a thing called priority mail. Right? It has to do with more than just the, the order of importance, but it has to do with a sense of urgency. And when I talk about priority, I'm not talking about priorities. I'm talking about a sense of, of urgency that this church lost somewhere in their prosperity. They lost urgency. They just got up every day and went to the bank or went to the hospital or whatever they were doing. They just got up and did every day. And we're a part of this big thing, this big prosperous thing. And it's easy to get used to it. And they got used to it and they lost urgency. Jesus says, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm knocking on the door. And I'm not here because you're a great tourist town. <laughs> like, why am I here? You don't offer anything. You're not like Hierapolis. You're not like Colossus. You, you don't offer anything. But I'm or anyway. And so as we leave, this can find you in, in one of many different locations. Maybe, maybe in your own mind, you can, okay, I'm not like this. Maybe we are. Maybe the idea of a $400 toilet is something I need to think about. But God just is Here's a thought to leave with. Can you review your living conditions? Can you, can you review things and can you make something more hospitable? Can you make a more hospitable environment to me? I, I could use something like Hierapolis. I could use something like Classic, But I, I, need, I need a more hospitable environment. I need a, a greater sense of urgency. Because the world around you has so much appealing to offer if we just keep our heads down. It can be so comfortable. And we can be very impressed with the conditions that we find ourselves in. But God says, this is the emperor's clothes. He says, what you don't see is you don't see yourself as I see you. In reality, he says, you're naked, you're blind. All these conditions that you think you've got under control because where you live don't really exist. 
so I hope as we leave here, we kind of look not necessarily at, at ourselves differently. That's not my challenge. The challenge is not to say we're so bad people. That's not what I want you to do. What I want you to do is to leave here and, and look at the conditions that are around you differently. To notice that, that what is offered to you in exchange for silence really has nothing uh, to give to us. Okay,